please. Believe it or not. Incomparable, inimitable, illimitable, inestimable, introducer of immeasurable, incalculable, incredible impossibility. Ripley's Believe It or Not cast, the podcast that brings you deep into the strange, the bizarre, and the unusual. I'm Ryan Clark. And I'm Brent Donaldson. So, Ryan, today we are talking about a topic that may be tough for some to handle. Uh, It involves the electric chair, the strange story behind its invention, and the problems that occurred during the first attempts at using it. But in this episode, we're going to look deeper into the subject to see why the chair was invented and how one of the world's greatest inventors would use it to his advantage. So let's flash back a moment. The year is 1890, and the state of New York has adopted the electric chair as its preferred method of execution. The idea was that once strapped into the chair, alternating electric current would be passed through the body, fatally damaging the internal organs and the brain in theory. After another man had his sentence commuted to life in prison, 28-year-old William Kemmler, convicted of killing his common-law wife with a hatchet in a drunken rage, became the first person sentenced to die in the electric chair. The day of his execution, August 6, 1890, it seems he'd found some peace. He said, quote, Gentlemen, I wish everyone all the good luck in the world. I believe I am going to a good place. The papers have been saying a lot of stuff that ain't so. That's all I have to say. And that's all he would ever say again. Kemmler was led to a crowded room when the warden strapped him in. He told Kemmler goodbye, and then he flipped the switch. We're going to hear about what happened then, and it's, it's not good. But first, let's rewind a bit further. Back to the mid-19th century, 1847, in a tiny town called Milan, Ohio, 12 miles southeast of Sandusky. The town has just over 700 people at the time, but one of them will become one of the world's greatest inventors. Thomas Edison. I've heard of him. Yes, I'm glad that you have. But what motivated him, Ryan? How was he able to do what he did? He was a complex guy, and as Dr. Paul Israel of Rutgers University explains, he did not play well with his peers. So uh, I'm Paul Israel. I'm the director and general editor of the Thomas A. Edison papers at Rutgers University. Uh, I'm also uh, an Edison biographer. I wrote a biography of him um, and uh, I've been working on Edison and the Edison Papers has been working with his papers uh, for the last uh, 40 years. Um, tell me about, and, and I wonder, competitive? Um, <laughs> you know, tell, tell me about Edison. Well, the Edison was well. definitely competitive and you know, there's a, a journal, actually it was a women's journal that uh, did this little interview with Edison and they have their bunch of sort of pullout quotes that they do. And one is, uh, an inventor needs enemies, right? That is rivals to challenge him. And Edison certainly treated other inventors as rivals. There's no doubt about that. Um, And so I think that was very important part of the way he thought about himself as an inventor and his relationship to other inventors. So I don't think it's surprising that Thomas Edison was a competitive person, but how did he get that way? And where would that mentality take him? 
Edison grew up without a formal education, instead learning from his mother and from reading books. He was also partially deaf, which is interesting based on things he'd do later in life. So, as a young man, precocious young Thomas started selling candy, vegetables, and newspapers on trains from Port Huron to Detroit, eventually becoming a telegraph operator on the night shift with the Associated Press Bureau in Louisville, Kentucky. Of course, he requested the night shift because he wanted to practice his two true loves, reading and conducting experiments during the night, a practice that eventually got him fired. Edison then moved to New York, where he partnered with Franklin Leonard Pope, and the pair founded a company where they worked as electrical engineers and inventors. From there, he would go on to create his famous industrial research lab in Menlo Park, which would lead to either improvements to or the creation of inventions like the phonograph, the light bulb, and the motion picture camera. But Dr. Israel tells us how it all started with that telegraph machine. He got involved in producing stock ticker technology, printing telegraph technology, uh, which is mostly mechanical but operated by electricity. But he became very interested in other uh, improvements in the telegraph system to uh, multiplex um, uh, signals so you get more than one signal on a wire and other uh, forms of, of speeding up telegraph transmission and reception. Um, he ended up going to Britain to promote one of these systems, discovered he didn't have a clue about some of the electrical effects that were, came from underground wires and Atlantic cable transmission, which were uh, present in Britain but not in the U.S., came back and turned himself into a science-based inventor. He set up a little laboratory for electrical and chemical experiments. He began to do basic applied research to understand the sort of the underlying scientific understanding of the, the problems that he was facing in trying to solve these, these more complex electrical problems. And this would soon lead him. So he was born in 1847, came to uh, the New York region, especially uh, Newark, where he set up his, his machine shops and laboratories in the early to mid-1870s. In 1876, he set up his famous lab in Menlo Park, New Jersey, which is the first real laboratory devoted to uh, invention. And it was an invention laboratory. That's what one of the newspapers, uh, invention factory. That's what one of the newspapers called it at the time. Um, Edison made his reputation in the telegraph industry. That's how he got into telephone technology because Bell was working on finding ways to send multiple signals. Edison had invented something called the quadruplex, sending four signals on one wire, when improvement over another system for sending two signals over one wire and they he and other people were trying to figure out how to to send more signals using tuning forks and vibrating reeds to send frequencies or tones right different tones over the line separate them out and this resulted in the telephone edison as a telegraph inventor and operator thought about recording and repeating messages so he came up with this idea for what became the phonograph the first ever method of recording and playing back sound. That's how he became the Wizard of Menlo Park, right? Because he had the resources of this laboratory and he had done this astounding thing by recording and playing back sound. So he becomes the Wizard of Menlo Park. But there are certain inventions he's gotten credit for that may not be rightfully attributed to him. 
the electric light, for instance, did he or did he not invent it? Leonard DeGraff, archivist at the Thomas Edison National Historic Park in New Jersey, told Ripley's that's a complicated question and went on to tell us he was not the first inventor to work on the problem. About 20 different inventors had patents on it, and English chemist Joseph Swan began experimenting with filaments made of various materials, though ultimately there were problems with each of them. Dr. Israel goes on to tell us that what Edison did do was expand on an existing idea. He was convinced that he could develop the first practical incandescent lighting system and... With his team of inventors and staff, he set out to do just that. You begin to get these very bright lights called arc lights, uh, lighting, beginning to light city streets in Europe and in the U.S. And Edison begins to investigate this. People had been thinking about incandescent lighting for 40 years. Nobody had accomplished it. And Edison was able to do that because of the resources he got from people in the telegraph industry, because of this laboratory, he could look at the entire system uh, comprehensively and systematically. And he invented a light bulb because he was thinking about the entire system. In fact, he had an improved generator before he had the light bulb. And once he had this, these sort of two basic components, he was beginning to work on the other things like meters and other elements of the system, the underground conductors. He takes the funding that he got and expands his laboratory resources and moves from research to development. So in the electric light research, we constantly see Edison looking to see how the economics of his system um, relate to other lighting systems, arc lighting, gas lighting uh, that were being used in cities at the time. And so you can see this constant iteration of not just the technology, but also the, the um, commercial viability of it by looking at the economics, uh, not just of uh, operating the system, but also manufacturing instruments, how much they're, they're going to cost, what materials we're using, and so forth. And so this is Edison's great contribution. The reason he was such a successful inventor, innovator, is because he reconfigured how to think about the development and innovation of new technology. So that's interesting. He's improving upon some existing ideas by taking a systems approach, sort of looking at where each component fit within the system it was part of. But as a manager, as a boss, he seemed demanding, right? But still able to inspire the people who worked for him. As we said, he was a complicated man. Brilliant, yet driven by his work as so many people can be. But sometimes his belief in himself, along with his competitive nature, could lead him to decisions he would later regret. Indeed. So throughout the 1890s, Edison began to form a rivalry with George Westinghouse, who was a proponent of alternating current voltage for generators, or AC, which could be used over long distances. Edison, however, was a proponent of direct current, or DC, which was a safer option but required everyone to have their own generators and was limited to short distances. Edison believed his solution was the better one, and according to some, he went too far in trying to convince the public, and this happened to come at a time when methods of execution were under debate. You had asked about the, the electric chair. That emerges out of this 
a combination of a commercial contest between Edison and the Westinghouse Company, which is the leading uh, long-distance alternating company for transmitting uh, electric light and power. In 1886, so Edison's system emerges commercially in 1881. The um, Westinghouse Company starts to introduce alternating current in the U.S. Uh, it already been introduced in Europe. In 1886, Edison investigates it. There are definitely issues with the early system. It's not as economical, although that changes pretty rapidly. Uh, and there are safety issues. High voltage transmission is much more dangerous. And this is one of the things that Edison was very concerned about because uh, there were accidents that challenged the entire industry, uh, mostly because street lights uh, operate in uh, high voltage arc light systems and the wires were strung right next to telegraph and telephone wires and occasionally there would be a public uh, uh, accident where alignment for a telegraph or telephone uh, company would go up to fix the wire and they'd be electrocuted because they cro the wire crossed with the arc light. And so the, it, electricity was a new technology. People were very concerned whether it was safe or not. And Edison was very concerned about sort of the reputation of the electrical system. And so part of his opposition to AC was based on the safety issue. And um, Purely by um, coincidence, although not entirely by coincidence, um, the state of New York was investigating alternatives to hanging for executing criminals. And because of these, this, these kind of public accidental electrocutions, people had begun to think about electricity as a more humane way of doing that. And the people on that commission actually approached Edison about this. So uh, one of the interesting things, I'm not sure if we've talked about it or not, is that the idea for electrocuting people actually comes from uh, folks witnessing accidents with these AC generators that uh, Westinghouse is a proponent of. Edison says that his direct current is safer, and he's probably right. But here's the thing. It doesn't work as well, right? So... Uh, the funny thing here is that people have seen accidents happen and people get electrocuted while using this AC. So that's how, in part, uh, people come up with the idea of utilizing an electric chair to humanely execute them. <laughs> that's where that's where this kind of uh, doesn't make sense to me. Like, um, so you say humanely. Um, is it like to be electrocuted? Is that humane? Like uh, the guillotine, that seems pretty painless as far as death goes. I, I, I just, I guess I never understood this need to push the science of death further and further. I don't know, like right. a, a, a firing squad, pretty humane as far as being killed goes. Right, right. right. So is the idea to make it as quick and painless as possible. As I, I assume that's what we're trying to do. I don't. I don't know. I, I think it's it, it. It seems to be to make it um, as easy on the observer as possible. I see. 
I got you. Well, uh, a dentist in Buffalo named Alfred Southwick started testing this electrocution theory on stray animals. Uh, He then decides to get in touch with Edison, saying that electricity might be the alternative that people are looking for to, to hanging. Edison hates this idea, and he rejects it immediately. He says he's against capital punishment. But Southwick persists, and finally, according to the book The Electric Chair, An Unnatural History by Craig Brandon, Edison responds with this note, quote, The most suitable apparatus for this purpose is that class of dynamo-electric machinery which employs intermittent currents. The most effective of these are known as alternating machines, manufactured principally in this country by George Westinghouse, end quote. <laughs> so that was an almost diabolical, like that was a very calculated move, right? Edison told Southwick that Westinghouse's AC current was far more dangerous than the preferred DC. And if people believe that, then maybe they would be more likely to support Edison's own DC generators. So with the backing of Edison, it did not take long for politicians to come around to the idea of a new form of deadly punishment. Edison gets involved in having these experiments with electrocuting dogs using high voltage AC and high voltage DC to compare them to understand the issues around safety. Uh, at the same time, the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals uh, had asked about the same uh, thing for um, putting unwanted animals to death. Is electricity instantaneous and painless, right? We're still trying to solve that problem. We haven't done it yet, but you can see the beginning of this process of trying to find humane methods of killing animals and people uh, in the growth of the electrical industry. And that's how the electric chair emerges. Edison doesn't design the electric chair. He advises on how the electrocution should be done of the first ever person who's put to death. And he actually testifies in the court case as to whether this is cruel and unusual punishment. Uh, His expertise comes from his knowledge of electricity, not his knowledge of physiology. But there's nobody who really understands this stuff. And Edison, as the wizard of Menlo Park, his testimony actually carries the day, I think, in terms of the decision that the judges make. Uh, The first electrocution is actually botched because they don't, in fact, follow the uh, recommendations that Edison uh, had made. Um, and electrocution is never really a, a painless, instantaneous uh, method of execution. It, it doesn't really work the way that people hope it will. Um, but it emerges out of this commercial contest and these concerns over uh, humane death. And so this is a, an important uh, episode. And Edison is sort of the central uh, central figure in part um for the the um, commercial competition, but also because there are these larger social issues that become wrapped up in the commercial uh, competition between Edison and Westinghouse. So that's what we were just talking about, right? It's a commercial competition wrapped in social and humanitarian facades. And it all leads us back to William Kimmler in 1890, sitting in that chair when the first switch is flipped. He was supposed to be dead in seconds, and at first, everyone believed it to be so. 
After 17 seconds, two physicians examined the body and determined that Kimmler was deceased. The switch was flipped again, and the current was turned off. The room was silent, and that, we assume everyone thought, was the end. This is the culmination of ten years' work and study, Southwick said. We live in a higher civilization today. Just then, someone in the crowd noticed he was still breathing, and then a heartbeat was detected, and then someone shouted, Great God, he is alive. So they turned on the electricity again, and only after a gruesome four minutes was Kemmler pronounced dead. The New York Times reported the room smelled of cooked flesh, that the body took several hours to cool off, and that the spectacle was, quote, far worse than hanging. Westinghouse himself thought it was a disaster, saying, quote, they could have done a better job with an axe. Later, Edison would say he regretted his part in the entire scenario. Edison would later say that because he was actually an opponent of capital punishment and he was convinced to become involved because they weren't going to abolish capital punishment. But if they could find a more humane method of doing it, that would be a contribution. Right. Mm. And so so he had this sincere commitment to finding a more humane way of doing this, even as he opposed capital punishment. Later on, continuing to be opponent of capital punishment, he regretted his involvement in the, in the development of the electric chair because he, he realized that it was not a more humane way. All right. So um, maybe I was being a little bit too cynical, like the, the idea of commercializing death and um, wrapping it all in some kind of humanitarian facade. But uh, um, it sounds like he had a, a true... Uh, he came to terms and, and decided that he was really against the death penalty all along. Uh, yeah, it's complicated. I think I think all of that's right, and I think you, I think you nailed it. It's complicated. He, I don't think there was ever a time when he wasn't for the safety of the public, but it's hard to realize that because he also had a vested interest in his own invention, which he thought was the safest. So it's kind of a weird double-edged sword there. It's difficult to tell his story without including the rivalry between him and Westinghouse and the electric chair debacle. Uh, But it's also impossible not to acknowledge the genius of the man who figured out that building a lab was the fastest way to test his many theories, which would then change the course of the world. As Dr. Israel said, Edison had the team and he had the approach. He knew how to think about problem solving and he knew how to move ideas from the laboratory into commercial development. So we should mention here, Ryan, that 31 states as well as the United States government and military currently have death penalty measures on the books. Lethal injection is the primary method of execution in states where it's legal. And believe it or not, the electric chair is an alternative method of execution in nine of those states, including Alabama, Arkansas, Florida, Kentucky, Mississippi, Oklahoma, South Carolina, Tennessee, and Virginia. But that said, let's get back to the core of Edison's story, which is invention. So Ryan, did you know that Marlon Brando was an inventor too? 
Did you mean Marlon Wayans? I did not. So just go to our website. Ripley's.com. And you can learn about how actor Marlon Brando was an inventor in his own right. Believe it or not. So before his death, Brando had invented a type of shoe to be worn when exercising in pools, otherwise maybe known as swimming. I don't know. Uh, He was also a trained musician on the conga drums and was working on a new tuning system for the conga just before he passed away in 2004 at the age of 80. But what did Marlon Wayans invent? Let's just stick with the invention theme here, Ryan. We got in touch with our friends at PISOR, which is an acronym for the Putnam Institute for Space Opera Research. That is common knowledge, I know. Just look up Pizor Industries and you'll see that one of the many cool things they've done is to research and curate dozens of amazing real-life patents that have been issued by the United States Patent and Trademark Office. So, based on today's topic and in the spirit of invention, we thought we'd share just a tiny taste, just one actual registered patented invention as rather dramatically interpreted by actor Shannon Ray Lutz. Sexual armor. Patent number 875845. Issue date January 7th, 1908. It is a deplorable but well-known fact that one of the most common causes of insanity, imbecility, and feeble-mindedness, especially in youth, is due to masturbation or self-abuse. This is about equally true of both sexes. Physicians, nurses, and attendants associated with insane asylums have long found this habit the most difficult of all the bad practices to eradicate. Therefore, with persons who have carried on such disastrous practices until serious ailments of the mind have resulted, there has been but little hope of cure. So what did you think of that, Ryan? I just can't really get over that everything we talked about there is real. Indeed. So thank you, Shannon, for that standout performance. And now, without further ado, we've come to the part of the podcast where we discuss misconceptions about some aspect of the topics we've covered. We call it the or not portion of the show because you can't always believe what you hear. This week, we've talked about the inarguable genius of Thomas Edison, including some of the inventions he got credit for but may not have actually invented, like the light bulb. As we've heard, sometimes the credit of the invention goes to the person who perfected it, or even the person who prepared it best to be utilized on the market. Other times, the inventor just happened to be the person who filed the patent paperwork first. Ever heard of Alexander Graham Bell, supposed inventor of the telephone? On Valentine's Day, 1876, two men raced to the patent office to file something very important. It's a debate as to who got there first. According to the Library of Congress, some say the first person there was Elijah Gray, an Oberlin College professor. Others argue it was Bell who arrived. Lastly, there was the case of Italian inventor Antonio Mucci, who was also working on a similar invention and may have filed what's called a caveat before either of the other two men. His role in the invention of the telephone was overlooked until the United States House of Representatives passed a resolution on June 11, 2002, 
honoring Miucci's contributions and work. For centuries, humans have been fascinated by those who have come before us and created the seemingly everyday things that none of us could live without. Even something like our telephones, which we carry with us everywhere, are amazing when we stop to think how they came to be. Here at Ripley's, we're going to keep investigating inventions, both the ordinary and the extraordinary, because wherever there's a good story, we're going to find it and tell it. Believe it or not. Believe it or not. Ripley's Believe It or Not cast is produced by myself, Ryan Clark, and Sabrina Seek. Our executive producer is Amanda Joyner. Thanks to our good friend Shannon Ray Lutz, actor extraordinaire who works at the historic Ensemble Theater in downtown Cincinnati. The Notcast is recorded at Herzog Studio, home of the nonprofit Cincinnati USA Music Heritage Foundation. Visit Herzog in person or sign up online at herzogmusic.com. The Notcast intro theme was put together by Colton Cruz, and our ending theme song is by the band Wussy. As always, if you enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe and tell your friends and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. If you have comments, questions, or ideas, email us at notcast at ripleys.com or tweet at ripleys. Be sure to catch the Notcast next week when we travel to Japan to bring you some of the strangest game shows in the world. What would it take for you to risk your life on national television? That's next week on Ripley's Believe It or Notcast. Cast. Yes.